Now, friends, as we come here to this little book of Lamentations, it normally and naturally follows the prophecy of Jeremiah. And in this little book, why his soul is laid bare before us. I would like to read the statement of another that I think will properly introduce us to this little book. It's a statement of Dr. White, W-H-Y-T-E, one of the great expositors of the word of a day gone by. I'm reading now. There is nothing like the lamentations of Jeremiah in the whole world. There has been plenty of sorrow in every age and in every land, but such another preacher and author with such a heart for sorrow has never again been born. Dante comes next to Jeremiah, and we know that Jeremiah was the great exile's favorite prophet. Now, we come to this little book today that moves us in actually to the heart of Jeremiah. We've had a great deal to say about him and that this man gave a message that broke his heart. And it did. Five chapters are here, and they're elegies. Five elegies. They're almost funeral dirges. They are sad beyond description. And here you see this man Jeremiah as he stood over Jerusalem weeping. And that's about all he did. And he delivered a harsh message. And we have seen that he began his ministry as a young man during the reign of Josiah. And Josiah led in the last revival, largely on the surface, but a great many hearts were touched. And Jeremiah and Josiah evidently were friends. They were young men together. And then Jeremiah continued on after the untimely death of Josiah in the battle at Megiddo against Pharaoh Necho, a battle that Josiah should have stayed out of. And then we saw this man Jeremiah prophesying during the reign of four wretched kings, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah, the final one. And this man, as he attempted to call his people and his nation back to God, actually he never deterred the downward course of the nation. And he witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem, and he saw it burn. He sat down in the warm ashes, and hot tears coursed down his cheeks. How tragic and wretched this man was! And you can pour his tears in the test tube and examine them from a scientific viewpoint. And I think you'd find that there was a great deal of NACL, a great deal of salt in his tears. But I don't think you would scientifically know the sorrow and the heartbreak of this man. He has been called the prophet of the broken heart a life that had been filled with pathos and pity. And his sobbing was a solo. He's a lonely prophet. He is the number one crybaby of the Bible. And this little book is filled with tears and sorrow. It's a pan of pain. It's a poem of pity. It's a proverb of pathos. 
It's a hymn of heartbreak. It's a psalm of sadness. It's a symphony of sorrow. It's a story of sifting. It's a tale of tears. It's a dirge of desolation. It's a tragedy of travail. It's an account of agony. It's a book of boo-hoo. It's the wailing wall of the Bible. Now, he's a sob sister, and a sob sister does not attract friends. Tears will not assist you in winning a popularity contest. Ella Wheel Wilcox wrote a little bit of doggerel, and she said, Laugh, and the world laughs with you. Weep, and you weep alone for this sad old earth. Must bar its mirth, but it has trouble enough of its own. Tears are generally conceded to be a sign of weakness. Crying is effeminate. Bawling is for babies. I remember many years ago in our summer Bible school we had right here in Pasadena when I was pastor, outside my study was the place where the kiddos came and went into the playground. And a little boy brought his little sister. And it was interesting to watch how he hovered over and watched after her. She was a little bitty thing, and he was still a little bitty boy himself, but he was older than she was. And one day, right outside my window, she fell on the asphalt, and she scratched up her knee, and she began to cry like a little child would, and he began to give her a sales talk. I listened to him. Oh, she shouldn't cry. And he was certainly selling her on the idea that she shouldn't cry. And he ended it by saying, he says, only women cry. Well, I don't know what he thought she was, but nevertheless, he thought that would hush her up. And you know, it worked. She stopped crying. This man, Jeremiah, had a woman's heart. He was sensitive. He was sincere. He was sympathetic. He's tender as a mother. And he gave the strongest and harshest message in the Bible. He announced the destruction of Jerusalem, and he pronounced judgment. And he counseled them to surrender. And it got him into all kinds of trouble. Now, what kind of a person would you choose to give such a rough, brutal, tough message as that? Would you like to get an Attila, a Mr. Gromyko, or Mr. Brezhnev, or any of the leaders, the dictators of the world? Would you have wanted Hitler or Mussolini to deliver your message? Well, I know one thing. I don't think we would send Casper Milktoast to give the message. Well, this is the kind of a man God chose, a man with a, actually with a broken heart. It was said, and I've just discovered who it was that said it. It was Dr. Dale of Birmingham, and Dr. Morgan is responsible for the quotation. He says that he heard Dr. Dale say that Mr. Moody was the only man who seemed to him to have the right to preach about hell. And when someone asked him why, he said, because he always preaches it with tears in his voice. Well... That is the type of man I think God wants today. We have too many that are not moved by the message they give. The story is told that David Garrick, he was one of the great Shakespearean actors of the past. He was going down a street, and there standing at the corner was a man just yearning over the people. 
And David Garrick said, I stood on the outside of that crowd, but I found myself imperceptibly working myself in until I stood right under that man, and there came down from his breast hot tears. Well, Garrick also says that a woman standing there pointed her shaking, withered finger at the man and said, Sir, I followed you since you preached this morning at seven, and I've heard you preach five times in the streets of this city. Five times I've been wet with your tears. Why do you weep? Well, that man was George Whitfield. He was a man, he was cross-eyed, he was burlesque on the English stage, he was denounced from almost every pulpit in England, and yet five times he preached in the streets of London, and five times his hot tears had wet this woman who stood beneath him listening to his message. David Garrick goes on to say this, He says, I listened to George Whitfield, and as I listened to him, I saw his passion and his earnestness. I knew that he meant that without Christ, men would die. And as I listened to him, when he came to the place where he could say nothing more, he reached up those mighty arms, and his voice seemed almost like a thunderstorm, and he yearned over that people and said, Oh, and this word, Garrick says, why, he would break an audience with that word. When George Whitfield said, Oh, men bowed before the Holy Ghost like corn bows under the wind. And David Garrick then made this statement, I would give my handful of golden sovereigns if I could say, Oh, like George Whitfield. Then he continued, I'd be the greatest actor that the world has ever known. But the only difference is George Whitfield was sincere. And that is the thing that can be said of Jeremiah. (laughs) I feel today that we have developed a generation that doesn't have any feeling and doesn't have any compassion really for this lost world and not even concerned about getting out the Word of God. There's no attention given to moral fiber today and a high sense of duty. In the Reader's Digest several years ago, they had an article, What Are Your Chances of Success? And this is what was given to young people. By engaging in work you most enjoy, and which gives fullest expression to your ability and personality. It's too bad Jeremiah didn't read that, because he would have gone in some other kind of business. But Jeremiah could say that it was the Word of God that he rejoiced in. And in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, he said, "'Thy words were found, I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts.'" How wonderful, this man. You know, today they're training them, and we find even in Christian work, they're looking for a job. They want to punch a clock. They want to go home, forget all about it, turn on the TV. They want to hold their feelings and emotions in reserve. And as a result, while you don't find today too many that are involved in getting out the Word, 
I thank God again and again for the staff that he's given me at the Through the Bible. Most of them are involved in getting out the Word of God today, and it means something to them. This man, Jeremiah, I must confess, I don't understand him. I admire him. I look up to him, and that's about all I can say. Miss Elizabeth Cook wrote this, "...a woman's heart, tender and quick and warm, but man's and iron will and courage strong. His heart was set to weird, pathetic song. Yet when time called for deeds, no wrathful storm from throne or altar could his soul disarm." His disheartening battle, fierce and strong, when legions in God's livery fought for wrong. This is Jeremiah. This is the man that had a sorrow. Now we come to Lamentations. And in this first elegy here, in the first chapter, will you listen to him as he opens? Oh, what a doleful note this is. He's singing in a minor key. Here, you may be sure. Now, Lamentations, chapter 1, verse 1, and Lamentations follows the prophecy of Jeremiah. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How is she become as a widow, she that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces? How is she become tributary? How did this great city, how did it fall? What's the explanation? Now, there are two statements that are made that are tremendous. Will you listen to them? Verse 8, Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she's removed. All that honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth backward. This great city, the strength of the city, was the fact that they were serving the living and true God. Now they turn their back on him. Their nakedness was revealed. And what has happened? Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. What a picture. Now, he asked the question, why does the city sit solitary? Well, let me read verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow that is done unto me wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. He asked the question, why does that city, the city of Jerusalem, sit solitary? And he gives a twofold answer. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned. That was back in verse 8 of the first chapter. He says there, Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she's removed. That's God's explanation of why. Now, there's another explanation. Verse 18 of this same chapter, "...the Lord is righteous." For I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you, all people, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. This man Jeremiah, he alone is the only mourner at the destruction of Jerusalem. And the debris is there. The city lies in ashes. And this man, 
He's weeping. What's the explanation? That's that he's sin. And the second thing is, the Lord is righteous. God did it. And God was right in what he did. And that's difficult to understand. And I want to come back to that tremendous statement that we made. And friends, may I say again, I feel totally inadequate to deal with this. I merely stand at the fringe of the sorrow of this man and find I cannot enter in. I can merely look over the wall into his garden, and that's all. I'm not able to walk up and down in it. And may I say to you that he's revealed two things here, the bitter and the sweet. He has revealed the fact that Jerusalem is sin, and that God loves Jerusalem. And will you listen to him here? Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold and see if there's any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger." And as we said before, people don't like to hear about the fierce anger of God today. That's left out. Even today, I find in many places. And I have time now as a retired preacher to look at TV, and I have been watching to see what's going on. I hadn't listened or looked for years, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't know that we'd gone as far as we had gone. Now, I saw several Christmas programs put on by churches on TV. And may I say to you, now, I will sound like a squire, because I am a squire, and I'm a retired preacher, and somebody will say, well, he's beginning to get senile. Maybe I am. But I do want to say this. The church is sure getting away from the Word of God today. Even those so-called gospel churches I listened to them singing songs, and I must confess the songs I hadn't heard before. Though there was one or two of the Christmas carols put in, and it had a little religious flavor. It had, as someone has said in one of these messages, he said, this is the essence of the gospel. Well, I remember what a professor of mine said, what the essence is. The essence is the odor that's left in the bottle after the liquid is gone. And the water of life was not there. And it was a travesty of the gospel because they did say that he was born of a virgin. I rejoiced in that, that he was God manifest in the flesh. But they said that he can give you personality and bring peace and he can bring love. And there were, oh, it was so sweet and ducky and lovey. And may I say, I came to the conclusion that Everything there was for comfort, and everything was compromise. Oh, they can say today, oh, we're trying to reach the lost world. Jeremiah did too. And he wasn't very successful, but he at least gave God's message. May I say to you today that, that it's so easy to stand on the sidelines, maybe like I am, and say what I'm saying right now, but... Maybe somebody needs to say it as we're saying it today. Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, and the Lord is righteous. God loved them, he said, with an everlasting love. And he brought this upon them because he's righteous. 
And I'd like to read you now the statement of another that might help us to understand this. He can say it so much better than I can. And I'm quoting now from Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. Will you listen to this? He says, "...there is the need for the revelation of God's anger." And I'm reading now, "...this is a supreme necessity in the interest of the universe." Prisons are in the interest of the free. Hell is the safeguard of heaven. A state that cannot punish crime is doomed, and a God who tolerates evil is not good. Deny me my biblical revelation of the anger of God, and I am insecure in the universe. But reveal to me this throne established, occupied by one whose heart is full of tenderness, whose bowels yearn with love, then am I assured that he'll not tolerate that which blights and blasts and damns, but will destroy it and all its instruments in the interest of that which is high and noble and pure. Oh, my friend, you and I are living in a universe where there is a God, a living God. A God whose heart goes out in love and he yearns over you. But I want to say this to you. You can turn your back on him and he'll judge you and he'll still love you because he's the God of this universe. And I'm not sure I understand all that, but I know that's what he says in his word. And someday he's going to make it clear that hell is actually there because he is a God of love and a God of righteousness and a God of holiness. And the whole universe, including Satan himself, will have to admit that God is righteous and just in all that he does. My friend, God is so great and wonderful and good that we dare not trifle with him. He could say to those scribes and Pharisees, even the religious leaders of his day, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! And why? Well, because of the fact ye devour widows' houses. That's one of the things. May I say to you, if you can't take Christianity into your home, as well as your heart, into your business, into your social life, may I say to you, he'll have to say to you what he said to those religious rulers. You're a hypocrite. I didn't say it. He said it, my beloved. And he's the one that wept over these men, and he had tears in his eyes. My eyes are dry, but his eyes are filled with tears for you and for me today. Oh, my friend, don't turn your back on a God that loves you like this. It'll be tragic indeed if you do. And then our God is a righteous God and a holy God. Now, what God did, he did because God is righteous. He can't shut his eyes to evil. And even when his own children disobey him, 
God must discipline them. He must move in, and though it may break his heart, and actually, as we've seen, Jeremiah revealed the heart of God. And when he weeps, God's weeping. And when he sorrows, God is sorrowing. And he may not have all the answers, as we don't have all today, but he does reveal the heart of God. But the important thing is to trust in knowing that what God is doing, God's righteous in what he does. And friends, that's mighty hard to take, as we shall see in this book. And that he was right in letting Jerusalem be destroyed and the people go into captivity. It broke God's heart, and this man Jeremiah reveals it. I'd like to pass on to you Smith's little poem on Jerusalem that I feel probably gives a penetration into the life of this man, Jeremiah. I'm reading the poem now. I am the man sore smitten with the wrath of him who fashioned me. My heart is faint and crieth out, Spare, spare, O God, thy saint. But yet with darkness doth he hedge my path. My eyes with streams of fiery tears run down to see the daughter of my people slain and in Jerusalem the godless reign. Trouble, trouble are upon me, throne. Mine adversaries clap their sinful hands the while they hiss and wag their heads and say, Where is the temple but of yesterday? the noblest city of a hundred lands. We do confess our guilt. Then, Lord, arise, avenge, avenge us of our enemies. Well, that's the point. And this man, Jeremiah, is the man who cried out. He wanted to know why. And many of us have done the same thing. God now lets him see that the thing that he's doing is actually right. That is what God's doing. The question, though, arises, how much are the people involved? Does the world really care? And the question he asks here, is it nothing to you that pass by? And today it's difficult for man to accept the fact that God is angry. We're living in a day when this matter that God is love has certainly been played for all it's worth. And I agree with it. God is love. And God loves you, and I don't care who you are, what you've done. God loves you. You can't keep him from loving you any more than you can keep the sun from shining. You could get out of the love of God as you can get out of sunshine, but God loves you. And it's certainly needed to be emphasized because the church has not taken the love of God into the marketplace. And that's where it should be. It hasn't quite made it there yet. But may I say this to you? There did come along a generation that put an overemphasis on love, and it is sure that they did that. We've seen it on bumper stickers, and we've heard it everywhere. But they at least have called attention to the love of God in our day. Well, maybe it's that we're coming along now to call attention to the fact that God is righteous, and that God is holy, and God is just in what he does. Now, the fact remains, how much do we really care and feel about all this 
Is it nothing to you that Jeremiah sat there weeping over the city? There were not many others weeping over it. Oh, I know the captives who had been taken down to Babylon. They were by the canals of Babylon. And we're told in Psalm 137, they sat down and they wept when they remembered Zion. But you feel that their weeping and their repentance even then was not from the heart. They felt that God had not been quite right in what he had done. He had no right to let them go into captivity, weren't they his chosen people? And they cry out for vengeance at that time. And I think they had a perfect right to do that. But how much real feeling was there? It was the kind of repentance that the thief has who was caught. He began to repent. He didn't repent that he was a thief. He repented because he'd been caught. And he was sorry that they found him out. These people now are carried into captivity. And they're prepared now to weep. They've lost everything. Jeremiah was not carried into captivity. And he can sit there by the debris with all of the wreckage, all of the ashes and the ruins of that city, and he weeps. He's a free man, but they're not. But it's something that had moved him, and he was involved, and he was concerned. And I come back to the thing I mentioned before, that I have watched many of these TV programs, and especially at Christmas time. And I do want to say that they were very well done. They were finished programs, a thing of beauty. They had polish. They were professional. There were so many good things that you could say about them. It was a credit to the church to do something that would compare to the professionalism of the world. You have to commend them for that. But the one word that I did not hear and do not hear today, oh, I think it probably got in one of the Christmas carols last Christmas, but they didn't emphasize the word sin. <laughs> Great deal about the love of God, but nothing about the fact that we are sinners and that God is righteous and that God has to punish sin. They didn't emphasize that at all. May I say to you that we can talk about the virgin birth of Christ, we can talk about the deity of Christ, you can even talk about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, but my friend, the question is, why did he die? Why is he dying on a cross? Let me add that the question that is raised back in the 22nd Psalm, there's where you find it first. And the question there is, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And our Lord gave that when he was hanging on the cross. And the answer isn't in the Gospels, but the answer's back in the 22nd Psalm. Because thou art holy. He's a holy God. He's righteous. And Christ is dying on that cross because you and I are sinners because you and I are hell-doomed sinners. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by in this day? Look at that cross. He's dying. He didn't have to die. He's suffering as no man has had to suffer. God has forsaken him. And God will never forsake you as long as you're alive. And he forsook Christ so that he would not have to forsake you. Now, may I say is it nothing to you? 
Mike Cheney, who had an experience with the Lord, he's put it in a very wonderful way. And McCheney was a very wonderful man of God in past days. Listen to this. I'm reading now. I oft read with pleasure to soothe or engage Isaiah's wild measure or John's simple faith. But e'en when they picture the blood-sprinkled tree, Jehovah said canoe was nothing to me. Let me pause to say that Jehovah said canoe means Jehovah, our righteousness. Now let me continue the point. Like tears from the daughters of Zion roll, I wept when the waters went over his soul, yet thought not that my sin had nailed to the tree. Jehovah said canoe, "'Twas nothing to me. Is it nothing to you that pass by? When free grace awoke me, my light from on high, then legal fear shook me. I trembled to die." No refuge, no safety in self could I see. Jehovah, said canoe, my Savior must be. My terrors all vanished before that sweet name. My guilty fears vanished with boldness. I came to drink at the fountain, life-giving and free. Jehovah, said canoe, is all things to me. My friend, is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by Have you come to Jesus just to give you a little personality to join the church? You want to be a little religious, to bring a little peace into your soul, and to create a little love on your altar? Is that the reason he died on the cross? Will you hear me? My friend, he died on the cross to save you from hell. That's the reason he died for you. The Holy Spirit has come into the world to reveal Christ as a Savior. And one of the reasons that he's come to convict the world of sin, what kind of sin? Murder? Thievery? Oh, yes, I think he does, but that's not what it says. I think that is true, but the Word of God goes deeper. It's something worse than that. They sin because they believe not on him. What's the worst sin in this world? Well, God has a remedy for the murderer. The thief on the cross was a murderer. He got saved. Paul, I think, is guilty of murder. I think he's responsible for the death of Stephen. He got saved. Moses, I say to you that God has a remedy for a murder. God has a remedy for a thief. God has a remedy for a liar. And God has a remedy for a homosexual, too. But God doesn't even have a remedy for the man who rejects Jesus Christ. Because they believe not on me. That's the sin. And I would say that's the greatest sin that you can commit. Of course, it's a state rather than an act, because I don't think you can ever commit the act of rejecting Christ. I think you can gradually get to the state where it's absolutely meaningless. And I think that there are those who have reached that place. We've seen the Jerusalem in the book of Jeremiah reached the place where God could say to this man, Jeremiah, don't be disturbed that they're not listening to you. Why, he said, if I don't answer your prayer, why, if Moses were here and Elijah were here and Samuel were here, I wouldn't hear their prayer either. I think he could have called up all the Old Testament saints and said, they were all here, it's too late, they've crossed over. And I'm of the opinion that this sophisticated and very chic age in which we're living today, 
that thinks it knows everything, that there are many that have crossed over. Now, I must confess, I've seen the conversion of some folk that I never thought could be saved. I've met several folk who have been saved through this radio ministry, that had I met them before they were saved, I'm sure I would have said they were hopeless cases. One man up in San Francisco Bay Area on drugs, a hippie of the hippies. He committed several crimes. He's guilty, and apparently is guilty of the death of two people in an accident. But this man got marvelously, wonderfully saved. So I'm not the one to say when you've stepped over. But somewhere along the line, you can step over, and that's the thing that happened to this city. It had happened to an individual. What does Jesus Christ, his death, mean to you today? I read the testimony of a man who's written a book telling how God made him rich and all that sort of thing. But it was all about I, I, I. And I can't find where he says anything about how much the Lord Jesus means to him. My friend, what does he mean to you? Is it nothing to you that passed by? Now, let's move on, because this is a tremendous passage of Scripture. Now, I come to chapter 2, and I begin reading here at verse 5. The Lord was an enemy. He hath swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed the strongholds, and hath increased in the daughter of Judah mourning and lamentation. God says here, I take full responsibility for what Nebuchadnezzar did. I permitted him to come. He came because I used him as a rod, as I used the Assyrian before him to punish my people. I let him destroy the city of Jerusalem. My friend, have you ever stopped to think in your own personal life, why is it that God permits certain people to cross your pathway, and he does permit it? And you say, well, I wish I had never seen that person before. He's an enemy of mine. He hurt me. Well, God's permitted it for a purpose in your life and in my life also. Someone who may have brought sorrow to you, God permitted it for a purpose. And that is something we need to recognize. Now, God says here, and he goes even farther. I'm reading verse 7. The Lord hath cast off his altar, he hath abhorred his sanctuary, he hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces, and they have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of a solemn feast. That very temple that God had blessed, he even gave the directions for building it, and his presence was there at one time. Now, he says, the day came when I abhorred that temple. I hated it. Did you know that we need to investigate our own lives, those of us that are church-going folk? You're going to church. Is it something that God takes delight in, or is it something actually that you do and you hurt his cause? Your frame of mind's not right when you go. You're very critical. The Spirit of God doesn't use you. I think it can be sinful to even go to church. Do you know where the most dangerous place was the night the Lord Jesus was arrested? Well, somebody says it was down there with that bunch of rascals who were plotting to put Jesus to death. No, my friend, the most dangerous place that night was in the upper room where Jesus was. 
You know why? Satan was there. He put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, and he got in the heart of Simon Peter also. If Simon Peter were here and you put him on the witness stand, I think he'd bear that out. This is tremendous, is it not? Now, if you want to know how this man is involved, let's look at verse 10. I'm moving down now in chapter 2. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground, keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They've girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. Let's look at that for a moment. They all went through all the outward gyrations of grief. But now notice how it affected the man Jeremiah. Verse 11, he says, "...mine eyes do fail with tears." He says, "...I can't even see." Notice that. "...and my bowels are troubled, yet diarrhea. My liver is poured upon the earth for the destruction of the daughter of my people because the children of the suckling swoon in the street." Now, this man is really affected, and he's torn to pieces. It wrecked his health. How much are we really involved in God's work? Isn't a lot of it just on the surface? Are we willing to endanger our health? Are we willing to give ourselves over to God? Oh, how many are willing to do that? This man, Jeremiah, he was involved, friends. You notice what he says there. It broke Jeremiah's heart. Listen to verse 15. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem, saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? Now, I have a question to ask myself. I've been severe the past few times with the church, and I get letters every now and then from people saying, you sure critical with the church? Well, yes, and I do need to make a distinction between liberal church and a Bible church. There's quite a difference there. But the question is this. I'm not in the church today as a pastor, as a pastor 40 years. I'm actually retired. I'm retired from the ministry, but I'm not retired from the work of God. I'll tell you that. I don't ever intend to retire. I'm no longer an active pastor, but I'm active, and I hope I can keep that way till I die. I have a question to ask myself. How much am I involved with my brethren who are in the ministry? Is it nothing to me? Am I just going to sit on the sidelines and be a critic of them, or is it something that really brings sorrow to my heart? Now, my friend, I'm not going to answer that question for you because that's my own private matter. But I can say I've been moved. In the past few years, it's been my privilege to be in churches all across this country. And I've met many wonderful pastors, many of them with broken hearts and some of them with broken health. It is something to me what's happening today. My friend, if you're going to criticize we better be sure that our criticism is something that has touched our own hearts and our own lives. I'm afraid that some of us can become very harsh and that it means nothing to us at all. What we have 
in chapter 3 is an acrostic again. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse begins with a letter. But in this chapter, we have 66 verses, which means the three verses begin with the first letter, Aleph, in the Hebrew alphabet. And an acrostic, in case you're not acquainted with it, they've sort of gone out of style, is when you and I were young, and that was a long time ago for some of us, A is for apple, B is for baby, and C is for cat, and so on. So here it's Aleph, Beth, Gimel, the Hebrew alphabet, and there are three verses here, and you have 66 verses. So this is the very heart of the book of Lamentations, and it continues the lamentation of this man. Now, he says here, I'm the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turneth his hand against me all the day. My flesh and my skin hath he made old. He hath broken my bones. Now, Jeremiah viewed the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and it broke his heart. He'd predicted it. He urged the people to turn to God before it is too late. They did not. And judgment now has come upon the nation. He was not unmoved by it. He didn't run around telling everybody, I told you so, and rebuke them. He did not do that. Actually, he was heartbroken. And the destruction of Jerusalem was the wrecking of the health of Jeremiah. It lets you know how God feels. God is not removed. Remember, he made it very clear that he goes with those that are his own. The Lord Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And whatever you enter into, why, you can be sure he is there. So here we have this man being actually made old. And in this, he tells about how he was ridiculed for what he had to say. And yet in all of this, He has to say, beginning now with verse 21, "...this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him." If you want me to give you a title to the last three chapters here, I would give it this kind of a title, When Tomorrows Become Yesterdays. He now is looking back upon the past. And Jeremiah had predicted that judgment was coming upon Jerusalem and the people of the nation Israel. Now that judgment has come. And Jeremiah sits in the rubble and ruin of Jerusalem, weeping as he writes this lamentation. In fact, there are, as we've said, five lamentations in this book. And in this third lamentation here, we begin to see the only thing that is bright. What I've just read is the only bright spot in all of these. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. 
They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In spite of the severe judgment of God, and many thought it was too great a judgment, Jeremiah can see the hand of God's mercy. They would have been utterly consumed had it not been for the mercy of God. If they received their just deserts, they would have been utterly destroyed. They would have disappeared from the earth. And it's all due to what? To something in them? No. All due to the faithfulness of God. He had promised Abraham that he would make a nation to come from him. This was the nation. He'd promised Moses that he'd put them in the land. He promised Joshua that he would establish them there. He promised David that there'd come one in his line to reign on the throne and forever. And the prophets said the same thing, that he would not utterly destroy them, but he would judge them for their sin. And now God is faithful. He's judged them, but he'll not utterly destroy them. A remnant would remain, and ultimately they would become a great nation again, And I think there's a lesson here for us as a nation. Will God judge America? Great many people think not, but I think that he will. And if I have time at the conclusion of the message, I want to develop that thought. But I do want to deal with the text now as much as we possibly can. Now, in chapter 4, we come to the fourth lamentation, And it is a meditation. And when we get to chapter 5, you'll see that's a prayer of Jeremiah. And here is a lamentation. Here, sitting amidst the debris and the ashes of this city, he now describes the horror of the destruction of Jerusalem and the captivity of the people by Nebuchadnezzar. We've come a long ways as a nation... And we need to face up to it that though we've been given a strong dose that God is love, and He is, we ought not to detract from that one whit. But we better face up to it. And this little book is just like a red flag warning God's people. And it is saying that God is also righteous and that God judges sin. And when God judges sin, God is righteous in doing it, though we might think otherwise. As we've just said, these people did not get full judgment because God is merciful. And even in all of his judgment, like Habakkuk said, in wrath, remember mercy. And God never forgets to be merciful. There's always a way out for God's people if they will come God's way, you see. Now, we come here to verse 1 of chapter 4. How is the gold become dim? How is the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. Now, he is comparing the gold here to the young man of Zion. And that's clear in the next verse the precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold 
How are they esteemed as earthen vessels, the work of the hands of the potter? Here we see that these young men, fine young men in Israel, that were like gold vessels, they are now like earthen vessels of clay, and they've been broken. That is always the terrifying thing about warfare. It eliminates the finest young men of every nation. That is the tragedy of war. We are a proud people in this country, and even Christians are told that they should think well of themselves. We are told that that's the thing to do. I heard of a Christian psychologist that teaches that you ought to get up every morning, look in the mirror, and say, I love you. Well, I want to say to you, a lot of the saints don't need to be told that. They already love themselves. That is something that we ought to recognize is that that's not what we're to do. Paul says we ought not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And if we don't think of ourselves more highly, well, we'll find out that we're merely clay vessels. And that is the thing that you'll recall Paul in speaking of believers over in Second Timothy. He uses many figures of speech to liken the Christian to a good soldier, to a farmer, a husbandman, to a workman, and then to a vessel, a clay vessel. It's not the fact that we are clay vessels that is the bad thing. It's how are we being used. That's what counts. Are we a vessel for the master's use? Are we using it for ourselves? You remember the wedding in Cana of Galilee? The Lord Jesus had them bring out those old beaten water pots that apparently had been hidden or stuck back in a corner till after the wedding. Well, they pulled them out. And he took those water pots and fed the crowd. You see, he could use old beaten-up water pots. And he had to fill it, though, with water. And the water is the Word of God. And when these old beaten water pots that we are get filled with the Word of God, God can use us. And that's something that we need to recognize. Now, these fine young men in Jerusalem, they were not serving God. Now they're just broken pieces of pottery. That's all they are. What a tragic picture it is. Then you have given to us a vivid description of the destruction of the city. Will you notice what he says in verse 4? He says, "...the tongue of the sucking child cleaveth to the roof of his mouth for thirst. The young children ask bread, and no man breaketh it unto them." The siege of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar was a horrible thing. The people suffered inside the city. Instead of surrendering, why, they held out and would see the little babies just die because the sucking child had nowhere to go. It was a terrible way to kill the children. You know, Shakespeare has a very vivid description of that. He has Lady Macbeth say this, I have given suck, and know how tender tis to love the babe that milks me. I would, while it was smiling in my face, have plucked my nipple from his boneless gums and dashed the brains out 
had I so sworn. I tell you, that is a bitter, awful thing. And do you know that abortion today is murdering children? That's exactly what it's doing. So don't point your finger back here when we see in a moment the terrible thing that these people did. And notice what happened to them in verse 5. They that did feed delicately are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embraced dunghills. You see, they had lived in luxury. They had big supermarkets in that day. And now the shelves of the supermarkets are all bare. And they do not have all of the conveniences that they once had. In fact, they don't have any at all. What a picture. Have you ever stopped to think what might happen and could happen to the place where you live today? And if America continues the way we're going, look in your supermarket. The shelves are groaning with food. But suppose all those shelves were empty next week when you did your shopping. You'd hear a howl go up in this land, let me tell you. And then we couldn't push a button <laughs> and the lights had not come on. We couldn't turn a switch. We'd have no heat or we'd have no air conditioning and there'd be no gas for the automobile. Tell you, we'd be a helpless people. That's what happened in Jerusalem. I tell you, God was judging them. And he says, For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment and no hand stayed on her. Now, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. But God judged Jerusalem worse. Why was that? Because the sin of Jerusalem was worse than that of Sodom. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of homosexuality. That's an awful sin. But let me tell you something that's worse than that. It is for you to sit in a church pew and hear the gospel and do nothing about it. And that'd be true of some of you listening to this broadcast right now. Jesus died for you. God is merciful to you today. And you turn your back on him. And when God judges, your judgment will be worse than the heathen in Africa or out yonder in the islands of the sea. A great many people say, what about the heathen out there? You don't worry about them. You worry about yourself. What about you? I'll tell you this, your judgment will be worse. God makes it very clear here that that is the thing that will happen. Now, will you notice? He says, "...her Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire." Boy, they looked good, didn't they? My, I tell you, today religion looks good. we all got new churches today, new buildings, and we've got that nice Christian education building... We have a place, you know, to play volleyball and a place to play basketball. And we got a baseball team and we have a nice banquet room where we have banquets. All looks good on the outside. Now, a Nazarite was one who took a voluntary oath. And there were many that did it. They'd get complimented, look good, you know. But it was all on the outside. Their hearts were not chained. Now, it's wonderful to have all these things. I'm for any church having all that it can possibly get. I'm not opposed to all this. I love these new churches. But I want to tell you, 
It's tragic when the people on the inside are not new creatures in Christ Jesus. They are still doing the same old sins. And that's the picture that you have here. But now their visage is blacker than a coal. They are not known in the streets. What a picture. Now, he says in verse 9, "...they that be slain with the sword are better than they that be slain with hunger." For these pine away, stricken through for want of the fruits of the field. Actually, Jeremiah, after the destruction of Jerusalem, and he saw the dead, it was an awful thing. But he said he'd rather be dead than be alive because of the condition of those that were left was so terrible. And then here's something that's frightful. Verse 10, "...the hands of the pitiful women have sodden their own children." They were their meat in the destruction, the daughter of my people. They got so hungry. And this took place also when Titus destroyed Jerusalem, that mothers had to give their own babies to be eaten. They would draw straws or did some way of finding out who was to be next. And it was an awful thing. Now, we look back and think how horrible that was. But remember the circumstances they were in. And a great many today are having abortions made when actually they're murdering babies. You don't want the baby, don't bring it in the world, because that's the way God made you. And he intends for that child to come into the world. And the moment that child is conceived, it's a person. It has personage. It is a person. We need to know that. Now, the sins of our prophets in verse 13... And the iniquities of her priests, that they have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her. By not telling the people the truth, they're guilty of murder. They're considered murderers. That's God's estimate of it. And a preacher that won't preach the Word of God and tell people how they might be saved is put in this classification. I didn't put them there. God did. God says, if you don't give out the Word of God, that you're guilty. But somebody says maybe the people wouldn't listen to them. Well, they wouldn't listen to Jeremiah, as we've seen. And God says here in verse 16, "...the anger of the Lord hath divided them. He will no more regard them. They respected not the persons of the priests. They favored not the elders." The people paid no attention to the priests who were giving out the Word of God. Jeremiah was a prophet of God, and they paid no attention to him at all. Now, will you notice verse 17? This is quite interesting. As for us, our eyes as yet fail for our vain help. In our watching, we've watched for a nation that could not save us. And that's something that the nation Israel needs to learn. God did not put them back in the land. The United Nations made them a nation. And since then, they've never known one minute of peace. It's been war, and it's that continually. It continues to go on. And they have not turned to God. And God has not put them in the land. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think the return of Israel back to that land was a tremendous thing. As Dr. Albright made the statement, he says, "...it's without parallel in the annals of human history." that a nation carried into captivity for 70 years should return to resume its national life. 
and that after nearly 600 years, this same nation should again be scattered worldwide for nearly 2,000 years and retain its identity. And that, my friend, has caused many to turn to God, to see how he's dealt with the nation. But they have not been returned by the Lord. And the Lord says here that their problem was they were looking to Egypt for help. And Egypt was an enemy. They were not a help. And that is something the United States needs to recognize. It's not the war machines that we give them that are important. We need to give them the Word of God, the Word of God that they gave to us so many years ago. What a tremendous little book this is. Now notice verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was taken in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we will live among the heathen. What a picture of them today. Scattered among the heathen. And we are one of the nations that they've been scattered among. Now, we read here that after the judgment, God will permanently place them in the land. Verse 22, The punishment of thine iniquities accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no more carry thee away into captivity. He will visit thine iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover thy sins. And so God promises them that out yonder in the future that he will put them back in the land. Now, chapter 5, we have the fifth and last lamentation, and it's a prayer. He says, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. And I wished I had time to develop this chapter. They had lost their honor and their respect that they had had among the other nations. Their women were ravished. Their princes were hanged. They had lost everything. Their young men that survived were put into slavery to work for Nebuchadnezzar. And the joy of their heart had ceased. All of this that you find here. And yet he cries out to God. Verse 19, Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. And... Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. And this nation could learn a lesson to that. Before it's too late, we better turn to the Lord. It was many years ago that Daniel Webster made this statement in a speech he gave, and it sounds like a prophecy. Listen to it. If religious books are not circulated among the masses and the people do not turn to God, I do not know what is to become of us as a nation. If truth be not diffused, error will be. If God and his word are not received, the devil and his works will gain the ascendancy. If the evangelical volume does not reach every hamlet, the pages of a corrupt and licentious literature will. If the power of the gospel is not felt through the length and breadth of the land, anarchy, misrule, degradation, misery, corruption, and darkness will reign without mitigation or end. What a picture. And now we live in a day where you can't read the Bible in our schools, but pornography, we must have pornography because 
we must be free to do what we want to do. Well, can't some of us have the Bible in our schools, especially when it's the majority? And it was Dr. Hyman of the University of Michigan who years ago made this statement. He says, "...the United States of America in the past 50 years has been dominated to a large extent by persons who do not understand the spiritual heritage bequeathed by their own ancestors." When our great nation was founded during the period from 1775 to 1787, the following statement by Benjamin Franklin was still widely accepted. Here's the statement of Benjamin Franklin. The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of the truth that God governs in the affairs of man. And then he concluded by saying, that is, Dr. Hyman did, Unless a marked change takes place in the United States of America, it's doomed just as sure as was ancient Babylon. And Dr. Machen says in his day, he said, America is coasting downhill on a godly ancestry. And now we've reached the bottom of the hill. What a message that this book of Lamentations would have for us today. But I can assure you that this will not be the popular book or the book of the month or the book of the year.